This is our first time, obviously. All right, welcome everybody. My name is Nick Larson. Welcome. You've got the Silicon Zombies, where you get the best brains from the Bay. That was pretty cool. So emerging technology is changing faster than ever before. It's happening locally, it's happening globally, but how is it impacting humanity at scale? So what we're gonna do is explore that with two delicious brains today, Mr. Sahir Lee and Dr. Alex Kahana. Before we do that, shout out to the fantastic and gorgeous Park James Hotel. Thank, Thank you. you so much for hosting us. <laughs> also wanna do a shout out to Nicodex, our sponsor, that's N-E-C-O-D-E. N-E-C-O-D-E-X, and the Codex, uh, they're, your, they're your outsource team if you're building web, if you're building mobile, uh, outsource to grow your technical team. And Premier Negocios does our branding, they're awesome, so if you're looking for assistance in digital marketing, talk to them, more information uh, on the show notes there. So let's go ahead and get things rolling, Who? what do you say? I'm ready. Beautiful. So uh, guys, uh, tech is changing so crazy fast, uh, but there are pros, there's cons, there's opportunities, there's uh, all sorts of threats too. So what are you seeing? Uh, oh, Yes, go ahead. I feel like we should introduce who these guys are. Yeah, who the I heck are like these guys? Else, well, maybe before we get into your recent travels, uh, could we take, maybe take 30 seconds and share a little bit about yourself? So here, kick us off here. Sure. Nick, first of all, thank you for having me. Cool. Ta-da. All right, here we go. Start again. One, two. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me, and thanks for hosting this at Park James. And... I mean, seeing all of you guys and meeting some of you, I, I mean, coming from Houston, this is not what I expected, but this is what Silicon Valley is all about, right? In Houston, you try to get a bunch of folks to come out. Unless they know each other, nobody comes, right? So, so this has been a great experience. So my background, uh, my name is Sahir Ali. Uh, I'm going to borrow this term from Nubar Effian, that I'm more of a parallel entrepreneur, but it's actually entrepreneurship because... When I got into college, I actually pursued three ideas thinking one will stick. Turns out all three stuck. And, um, and so I, was, I started as a quant, and that track turned into something. I joined a lab that was doing oncology and AI, and that turned into PhD. And my brother and I, a few of us, started a company, and that scaled quite well, which allowed us to become a family office. So I guess in last... 14 years, I would summarize that as a more of a parallel entrepreneurship. And, um, and now I'm kind of converged all of that as an investor. And so I heavily invest at the intersection of tech and bio and medicine. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Thank you, Sahir. Thanks. And, and again, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I think that you guys already know me because when I stepped out of the room, on the floor, it says part crazy, part genius. <laughs> so, so that's who I am. Um, I'm a physician by training, a pain doctor. I've built multiple pain centers around the world. So that means not only do I speak many languages, but I kind of know the dirty little secrets of every system. I've been interested in technology integration and clinical workflow for way too long, at least 15 years before it was even called what it's called today, when there was no cloud, the concepts of quantified self and all that. And I've been exquisitely interested ever since I moved to New York in 2013 in decentralized technologies and uh, I want to say Web3 technologies. So imagine, if you wish, a Venn diagram, emerging technologies, emerging markets, emerging ways of doing business, right there in the middle, that's where I am. So when people say I'm a leader in my field, it's not hard because the N equals one, so that's where I am. Wonderful. And so we actually got a chance to go to West Africa last year, which was an awesome opportunity meeting with President Aka uh, in recreating uh, Silicon Valley in Abidjan. And you actually just got back from another trip recently. Do you want to share a little bit about that, Alex? Sure, sure. Well, anybody who wants to check, go satoshiisland.com. So satoshi-island.com. It's in the South Pacific, about uh, three hours from Australia, two hours from New Zealand. It takes a while to get there on purpose because we want only people who are willing to do that trip. And um, it's a private, it was an un uninhabited, now it's inhabited, private island that we purchased that where we're actually applying these digital assets, these Web3 decentralized assets to almost social engineer the community there. 
So the idea is to have, you know, those who are short stayers, intentional travelers who come in, they say, oh my God, this is paradise, this is beautiful, and then they leave. Then we have digital nomads and say, hmm, I like this, I could stay, you know, for two, three months and enjoy. And then folks like myself would say, wow, this is not New York, maybe I could go there. So, so it's really a great, uh, I want to say, opportunity to apply, and I love, Nick, when you talked about what, what to talk about, what does technology do to us as humans? And we'll talk a lot about this. So that's, that's there. And just to finish by saying that uh, that island belongs to a country called Vanuatu, which even though it's considered a poor country, apparently they're the top three happiest countries in the world for the last 25 years. So it makes you wonder, why are they so happy? Awesome. So I'm trying to figure that one out too. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, so here, you, you got to do some great work with Richard Branson on Necker Island, uh, because this is the year of bio, you said, is that right? More like century. Century of bio, okay, I like that too. Yeah, actually I met uh, Richard, there's a couple of folks here in 2021, and, and on the island I was him and his CEO of Virgin Unite Foundation, and I said, Richard, your history, if you look at what you do, elders and all the, all the programs, it just doesn't involve health and medicine. And, um, and the response was that, first of all, it's not our area, and also a lot of the stuff we do at Necker are high-ticketed price, and it, it's for foundation and charities, the cause we care about, and we expect a certain sexiness to it to attract that, and nobody wants to hang out with a bunch of scientists or medical doctors. And, and so, I guess I, I thought maybe to synthesize that for him, the opportunity to do that in the space was, so I kind of told him about three names. I said, let's kind of start with these three names, see if you recognize them. And I, the first name was Cloud Shannon, John Juan Newman, and Alan Turing. So okay, the third one I know because an iconic, uh, you know, uh, UK father of computer science, the other two I don't know. And I said, okay, well, these three other names now, uh, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and uh, Bill Gates. And he said, well, who, who doesn't know them? And I said, so what was the difference between the first three? The Cloud Shannon's master thesis was the thesis of the century, which really gave us a digital circuitry which enabled the computers. John Juan Newman's architecture of the computer still is used in our computers. And of course, Alan Turing. Versus Steve Jobs and why were these household names? I think the the, the tech went from theoretical to practical into our homes, and they became sort of uh, superstars. And I, f I feel like something similar is starting to happen in health and medicine. And so if you look at Sanjay Gupta, if you go to his Instagram page, he's got millions of followers, which was not the case 10, 10 years ago. You didn't have the superstar doctors. You look at David Sinclair, as controversial as he may be, millions of people follow because now longevity has become a thing. And, and so, so he said, okay, well, this, this sounds interesting. Maybe we should do something. And he asked me to do it. And so we called it Membrane Gathering. And so the name comes from cell membrane. And the idea was that as in nature, when the evolution was happening, the DNA, the mitochondria, and all these sort of structures in our cell were separate entities. As the evolution happened, there was this membrane that was formed around it, which made the cell which caused the life to happen. And so we said if we use this island and let's bring folks together in health and medicine that typically are not in the same room. And so you think about scientists, you're, talk you're talking about venture capitalists, family offices, NGOs, charity. And so that's what we did, we called it a membrane and we brought together you know, some incredible 35 folks uh, last September. And so that's what the gathering was, Excellent. the membrane. Check, check, check. Alex, when you uh, introduced yourself, you said something that piques my curiosity. You said you're an expert in the world of pain management and you know the dirty little secrets of every country. I'd like you to share some of those dirty little secrets. <laughs> I don't care what the country is. Obviously, I'd like you to say something about the United States. <laughs> I, wanna, I just wanna, I wanna know what this guy knows. And, um, Tell us about the world of, of, of pain management as well. So either way, start, start with either one you want. Sure, sure. No, this is a great question, and I don't want to go on a, 
a whole monologue, so I'll, I'll stop me because it's really these are really deep and important questions. Uh, when people ask me, you know, what is the best healthcare system in the world? Because that's a, so I always say, well, you know, it depends because it's for you. It's the best healthcare system for you. So it's really about what do people want. And different societies want different things. And I don't, I don't use the terminology developed versus developing economies or you know, things of that sort, first world, third world. I, I talk about lean economies and obese economies. So we're an obese economy. We have a lot of friction, a lot of capital leakage, a lot of people in between. If someone wants to move one piece of paper to here, you have 20 people in the middle just moving that piece of paper. And you don't mind paying. You, you, for that, you're not even sure that you're paying it. Maybe someone else is paying for it. So our dirty little secret is that we like that. We thrive on all these solutions, on pills that take care of the side effects of pills, that take care of the side effects of other pills for conditions that just by eating well, sleeping, exercising, and engaging in spiritual or uh, 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 social interaction, we would be fine. So, so that is one, one secret, and when we start to talk about tech and data, and we can go into it a little bit later, then uh, we can really discuss about who owns the data, and what's the value of that data, and what can you do with that data to benefit people. So that's, that's Hold on, let's, let's go back to uh, something you said, uh, in terms of, generally speaking, because there's no way to, to do it for you, but generally speaking, what countries would you consider having the best healthcare system? Give us the top three. I would say uh, Switzerland, and it's not because I lived there for 10 years, but it's because it's similar to um, what we have here. On, on a smaller scale, of course, but it's similar, but their emphasis is on prevention, on primary care, of you know maybe before you do something eat well you know and 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 engage in exercise and move so so that that that's one country the second one is singapore which where they're leveraging technology and really uh pushing the limits of uh, if that's a word, responsibilizing. You know, it's like people have to drive the system. So it's not patient-centric, it's patient-driven. You really gotta take care of yourself, and it's not about, you know, consuming stuff, a pill for every ill and a test for every pest. And, and uh, 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 the third one, I'm kind of in between two, but it would be probably New Zealand, which is, is, is not very different. And I know that you're, all of you are thinking, well, these are tiny countries and it's not a problem and blah, blah. But I'm not, I'm not talking about the issue of scale. I'm talking about how people see themselves as responsible of their health, how much they see themselves engaged but, in but maintaining people, their health. People driving that decision, I mean, that kind of presupposes that they have optionality. What if they're living paycheck to paycheck? How can we move things forward in that capacity? So that, that's, a, that's interesting. You know that from our work that we're doing in West Africa, where you know people don't uh, have that liquidity, so to speak. You know, people aren't, I want to separate that people are not so much poor because they do have assets as much as they just don't have colored paper to, to pay for stuff. And so you saw that when we went there, there are actually options of providing healthcare without that expenditure. So for example, there's a host of, I wanna say almost now two dozen of villages that we have in East Kenya, where they all have phones. They actually have three phones, one for work, one for themselves, and one for the mistress. So you know, so, and, and they have good internet. And uh, in each village, they mint their own uh, kind of currency for the village. And they use that almost like electronic bartering that allows them to do things so they can save money for the real stuff, like if they have to pay taxes or if they have to go to school. And so, so, so there are ways to incentivize, to say to, for example, women there for prenatal care, or take your vitamins or vaccinations and things of that sort. Uh, so we've almost convinced ourselves that good things have to be expensive, but actually there's a lot of good and very simple things that don't cost that much. 
Um, this is a question for both of you. We'll start with you, Zaheer. Um, in terms, you guys are both experts in the world of medical technology. What's coming out that we're unaware of that is sort of blowing your mind in the world of med tech? Zaheer, you first. I guess, um, <clears throat> I think six or seven years ago was the 100-year anniversary of antibiotics. And so, I think last century, there were two most recognizable symbols, if you were to put together, for last 100 years, was the icon of the chip, and the other icon was the pill. These were the two most recognizable symbols. And the reason was, last century belonged to the Silicon Revolution, which we saw from the electricity, and then the pills, which the antibiotics revolution started in the early 1900s. And so the idea was, when we found this sort of magical thing that if you just put it into the bloodstream, it will find the infection and will fight it, and it helped save life and you know extended things. And in the same ways, we tried to treat cancer in the way the chem chemotherapy was symptom, something very similar. And for 100 years, that's the approach. All the drugs that come out is take pill, no, have disease, take pill, kill something. And that model worked really well for a while, but we can't address the most aggressive disease like cancer, the autoimmune, and all the other stuff that we're seeing. And so I think what, what I think I'm really excited about in the last 10 to 15 years, which has been theoretical, but now it's becoming very practical, is this, we can flip this model, is that we turn off the disease and the cells become the pills. And that's still cell therapy and gene, gene editing and all of that. But that technology couldn't have been thought about until certain convergence that we can talk about later. And so to me, the most exciting aspect is that I think we can, har we can turn our own sort of immune systems, our cells, and to, to really root out disease and really disrupt this model of have disease, take pill, kill something. So to, to dive down on the technicality and the science just for a little bit, if the mitochondria is essentially the factory inside the cell, how are you changing the instructions, or how does it work? Well, I think the, the instruction set, if you want to call that, is the DNA. But then there's this sort of hierarchical sort of information flow, right? Uh, what we call the, um, the sort of uh, the information flow of life is DNA to RNA, RNA makes protein, protein makes life. In all of this sort of chain, if you will, either coding errors happen or there's this sort of information that flows. Of course, genomics tackles the DNA level, right? What have we inherited? It tells you what, we're what we have inherited and what may happen. But really, that's where it stops, the genomics. Once that in a particular cell has um, that mitochondria and the, the RNA factory that actually is responsible for reading particular part of the DNA to make that cell function as cell, uh, sorry, heart or lungs. In that, that RNA produces proteins and that protein then makes that health function. And so then the idea is that what's currently happening in the body, that information is at that protein level, right? So that's what we call proteomics. And so, and then you have a lot of the bacteria that have co-evolved with us for billions of years, and that's in the gut. And you know we've seen a lot of the sort of correlations to mental health, and that's microbiomics. And so you see this sort of information layer in our own bodies, from genomics to proteomics to microbiomics. All of this is just now being able to digitize. We can digitize this because of the next-gen sequencing technology. That's, that's kind of the... Uh, I think we can actually digitize that information of life. That, to me, is the most exciting part. We're still early days, but I think that's, that's where AI really is raring to go. Alex. So I would say my answer will either excite you or disappoint you. Uh, so I'm very deep. I'm trying to go very wide. And my bias is because I was a pain medicine for almost 30 years. And so by definition, I've seen the failures of the system. Because half my patients were either had pain because they were sick and half of the other, the other half of patients had pain because something was done to them. So I obviously have a different view of the utility and futility of stuff that we develop for the betterment of ourselves and humankind. What excites me 
is when I suddenly see stickiness, when I suddenly see millions of people that couldn't have done something that suddenly can do it. So for example, and it doesn't have to be breakthrough technology, but on the phone, they have an electronic health record where they own their data. And they can say who can see what, when, and how. And that things that they do have value and they get either paid or get a discounts on that activity, all from their phone. So they don't need to go to a hospital. You know, one hospital has one software, the other hospital doesn't have an, that software. Nobody talks to each other. When actually what you realize is that the, the only thing that connects them is the person. And so in it, you have dozens of different technologies. Of course you have the AI with the analytics and the predictive uh, uh, capacities. But you have blockchain for the encryption and the security. You have telehealth for the remote monitoring and the conversations and suddenly you can say, oh, I'll take a picture with some vision, they can identify what that white pill is and I can tell my mother who lives upstate that what she's having for diabetes, she needs to take that and not that. So even though they're not as sophisticated and as breakthrough, you know, as 4D printing. How about, you know, we it's like scaffold cells and let's talk about brain organelles and brain on a chip and a little bit of nanobots throw into it. Sure, that's all great. But, but again, this is not, I'm not trying to poo-poo anything or to kind of disparage, this is all great. But what excites me is the, the, the breadth, the horizontality of things. You know, we're, we're thought to think of verticals and this, otherwise you boil the ocean. And I realized that you cannot seriously talk about mental health and physical health without talking about financial health and planet health. And so suddenly you find yourself and say, yeah, it's healthcare, but it's also how do I unbank or bank the unbanked or underbanked? And how can I develop capacities and empower girls and empower women and help with education and help then, you know, with in Africa and in Latin America, it's agriculture. So how do you do it in agriculture and, and, and water management and energy? So it all converges. And that's what is exciting. It's the convergence of technologies. And if you look, and I sent that to Nick, the uh, ARC Invest, you know, their um, Kathy Wood's um, 2024 uh, report. It's the convergence of these technologies that excite. You know, we just had Chip Conley on a couple weeks ago, and he said, uh, in addition, that social health is the greatest predictor to longevity, which is a little bit of a surprise, right? Like our relationships have a huge determining factor on how healthy that we can and, and be. I, and I want to say two things for that, because again, it's about an approach and goes back to what's the best, best healthcare system. So one approach, for example, is in Japan, where through that problem of isolation, they use robots and sentient robots, and it's wonderful. And it turns out that it's very helpful, and, and that even though elderly people with cognitive decline know that these are not their children, they love their robot even more than their kid. <laughs> but in Finland, in Finland, for example, the way they solved it in Finland was that they would put young people in college that cannot afford to live in Helsinki with older people that suffered from isolation and work together and be together in a room. And so you create that social fabric that some people say that's an excellent idea. So there's not one way of solving a bit, but I'll say for the isolation is when people ask me what is the opposite of health, I don't say disease or, or, or illness. I say isolation because it's through disease and, and illness that you get isolated. So, so if you believe that, then the journey back to wellness is that connectedness. And the way I explain it to my 17-year-old is if that if you take the I out of illness and you put we, what do you get? Wellness. You are amazing. <laughs> Everyone, platform. No, no. <laughs> I just came up with it. Uh, <laughs> listen. You, you brought up something that I wrestle with, and uh, it's a very controversial thing that I'm going to say, and I hope you address it. During the pandemic, I felt the powers that be, the CDC and the World Health Organization, uh, put physical health above mental health. And they told us, isolate, be alone, socially distant. Um, 
first of all, was that a mistake? And secondly, um, how long is it going to take for, because especially in the Bay Area, like we have events here all the time. People aren't coming out like they used to pre-pandemic. Like how long do you see before people start trusting and going out like they used to? Yeah, the, 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 this is tough, and I have to be careful, not only because it's recorded, but I want to be invited again. We're live right now. So. <laughs> and so I'm trying to remember, what's, what's the policy in California? Okay, so, 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 so I, I would say like this, that obviously, as a doctor who studied immunology, and by the way, I'm so old that the immunology book that I studied for was like a four-page book. It's not like, <laughs> today it's a whole subspecialty. It's like, what? There's a subspecialty immunologist? What is this? Anyway, it is not difficult for me to understand the utility of vaccines for in, in, incommunicable diseases. However, I think that what really COVID did to us and it's not, I'm not talking about the long COVID, and I'm not talking about the uh, uh, socioeconomic repercussions of it. It has basically eroded our trust in each other, which that in return hurt our ability to cooperate with each other. So like, I'm a very optimistic person. I, I believe everybody, I want to, but then I say, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, in, in page 47, you know, font three, it says uh, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. And I think that's the real hurt that we're feeling. So where technology can help is how can we bring back that trust, that transparency, trust, and value. And that's the model. So for me, when I say, for example, blockchain, and we don't have to talk about it, I know the B word is not supposed to be used in the US, so <laughs> when we talk about, and definitely not the C word, but so, so talk about a trustless, you know, a trustless environment, so it's computational trust. I don't need to trust you, I trust the, the, the program. And to a large effect, AI, which I find it like if, 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 that, if, if blockchain is trustless, then the AI would be for me emotionless, in the sense that it doesn't require human emotion to complete transactions. So emotions are good, but I think that's, if it, technology needs to help us with the trust, the loss of trust that we're suffering for. I, I almost feel like the, the trust that was eroded um, was with the government though. And doesn't that kind of bring us together against the government? Do you kind of, so here, do you have any thoughts around this? I actually want to offer a slightly different view of this, your question. The way I synthesize this is when the lockdowns and, and you know, isolation strategy was adopted, you had this sort of, this new variant of virus, which I think was sequenced in two weeks. So I think the story goes something that they didn't even have a platform to share now, which we do. Uh, so there was a WhatsApp group of bunch of immunologists and virus scientists. They just, they would just meet at these gatherings and they would just exchange notes. And so the Wuhan scientist actually WhatsApp the sequence. And this is how it got to the lead NIH. Within two weeks, and within, I think, a couple of days, they had this sort of architecture of the vaccine, right? But what they did not know is how fast the other variant was gonna happen. And this was unprecedented. And so I come from Houston. Houston, if many of you probably don't know this, it is the mecca of medicine. It is the largest medical center in the world. In fact, the TMC is the seventh largest business district in the world. 120,000 people go to work in that area. Even then, if you look at most metropolitan cities, how many ER beds do you think it actually has per million people? Even less, actually. And so the idea is that if one million people get a certain percentage that need that kind of care, what eventually happens is it overtakes your, health, your care system. Yeah. And when, the, when it takes the care system, then it will boil into the streets and things. So I think the idea was that nobody knew how to tackle this. And so the, what it made sense is that how do we actually contain this? In the hindsight, it seems, I guess, it had a lot of mental effects and we should have done a better strategy. But this is what data does to you, right? And we are more prepared now than we would have been. So that's the other alternative. Now, I think what didn't happen right was that a lot of it became, unfortunately, a bit political and information wasn't shared the way it should have been. 
I think people can digest. But if you actually, none of these sort of data points were shared and we were just left to make sort of decisions. Some people thought, okay, lockdowns were not great. Some were thought it was good. So I think that's the point of view I, I took. Can I, can I say something? You live in Texas. That is an entirely different world than California. We didn't have church events, synagogues for 18 months. I was flying to Houston to go to church every Sunday, and I would fly back. Did you see Joel Steen? <laughs> well, not Joel Steen, a different church. But, but the point is, um, for a lot of, you know, in the major cities, uh, San Francisco, LA, New York, um, people are leaving their small communities to pursue a dream. So they don't have families. And you know, you gave a very great politically correct answer, but I'm just wondering, was it a mistake to socially isolate? So, so, so my, answer, my answer to you is because I was in New York when it was empty, and, and, and of course ties a little bit to Nick's question about government and trust in the government or people telling us what to do. Uh, uh, the, the long and short of it is uh, that policies that cause us to be less socially cohesive are a mistake. And so when, and I didn't say that just for COVID. When I was invited to the Hill to talk about the opioid epidemic, since I was then the professor of the first pain clinic in the world, which was in the University of Washington in Seattle. And they were asking me about, you know, policies for, for, for and how OxyContin and pain pills and what's great or not. And I said, it doesn't matter what you do and what you give. If that thing that you do causes people to be less connected, it's not a good thing. And that's when I gave him the whole story of the connectedness. And connectedness is not just to you know, family, friends, data, faith. It's not just that. It's just being part of something that's bigger than you that we know is one of the strongest signs of longevity. And so, absolutely, he's right it's talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the epidemiology and the biology behind, you know, this, this catastrophic uh, global uh, endemic that happened. But I think that the real scar that it left, and it could be also an opportunity to realize that we are way more dependent on each other than we should admit, and to what should be my relationship with with government and laws, that's a, whole, that's a whole different conversation. But I would say in general that you need to understand the difference between centralization and decentralization. When things are centralized, then yeah, it's good. You get it quick and you get it you know, standardized and you get it. But they are sensitive to hacking. They are security vulnerable. They are sensitive to collusion. They are collusion vulnerable. They are sensitive to censorship. Censorship vulnerable. We had a governor that said, yeah, well, you know, don't tell that all these people died from COVID and, and because it's not gonna look good. So, so that is why when you read my LinkedIn and I do ask you, please ping me on LinkedIn, read my stuff, it's gold. I write, I decentralize everything. Everything, everything. Now, yes, it's messy to ask everybody their opinion on stuff and this. It's like, oh. But if I have to choose between something that is a, a consensus, that is a holographic representation of what we want, it's always a million times better than what I think with all my expertise and how much I think I'm a smart cookie to tell you what you should be doing. You are a smart cookie, Alex. So, but just, you know, we, we know that you're both men of medicine and you know, the Hippocratic Oath says, first do no harm. But the system feels so sclerotic. There's so much money to be made by by locking people up and keeping them sick. How do we break out of this, Alex? Answer uh, here. Well, JD and I had a long long conversation. You know, you're talking about my passion, and remember that that Venn diagram of emerging technologies, emerging markets, and emerging business models. So right now, you're asking about emerging business models and, and the incentivization structure, exactly. maybe, right? Are, exactly. Are there ways? Are there ways to incentivize people to do different things? And of course, the answer is yes. Now, it might feel a little bit strange for us because we've been so used to doing stuff in a certain way. 
But I always give an example of, you know, I'm old enough to remember when I was, when I was a young adult and I would travel, I would travel with a travel agent. Not because I was rich or something, but because that was the only person that knew stuff. And there was no, there was nothing on the internet. And Now, my understanding was that that travel agent was there to look after me and get me the best deal. That's a bodyguard, I take out. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what was, what was the travel, her incentive? What was her incentive? To give me the cheapest deal? No. The most expensive deal. Right? Because that's commission. Now, is that because travel agents are bad? No. It's because the incentives were wrong. If she would be paid more to give me the cheapest deal, she'd be awesome. So, so here, you know medicine and you know business. How can we incentivize in the right way to, to move the needle on, uh, on, on improving general health? And I, I try to look at the numbers and I was on, actually this is, when I was flying here, I met somebody on next to me and she was, she was saying that in Houston in 1980s she used to be a admin who filed medical records and they used to have this sort of a vault of medical records just being piled on and, and, uh, and then she saw the revolution of EHR and everything else. And if you, th if you think about why the technology has been adopted in healthcare, it's always been financial incentive. The reason why EHR was adopted is because it makes it easier to have a financial ledger. And so if I go to a hospital with a chest pain, every single point of service that's provided, there's a medical code for it. The more coding you're doing, the more reimbursements are coming. And I'm not saying hospitals are doing that as more of an evil sort of thing. They are at the end of the business, right? There's multiple stakeholders. It's not a simple answer. There's no one owner there. But there are 50,000 medical codes Here's a funny thing. There's a medical code if you actually fart it too hard. I'm not joking. There's a medical code if you have issues. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there, there's a medical code if you're having issues with your mother-in-law, and you can check me on all of that. There's, yes. That's 911. Yes. You have a medical code of getting sucked into a space engine or something. There's a medical code for everything. And, and so... With your mother-in-law. Yeah, with your mother-in-law. <laughs> That's a modifier. <laughs> so the point is that every single thing that, that get be touched in a care system has been codified. And, and that's been the issue. So in recent times, you hear the term value-based care. And that was some attempt to sort of change that. And this is where what Alex was talking about, preventive health. And I think we incentivize treating sick people. And here's another stats for you, because I like numbers and the business. In the United States, no matter where you are, if, of course, if you're in metropolitan cities, this, this will be a response time will be quicker. If you're having a heart attack, within 90 minutes, you're not only taken to the hospital, but you could be in an operating theater with your chest open. That's a stat. But the same system doesn't prevent that from happening. It's not incentivized, right? And so what I guess ultimately what I'm saying is this value-based care is saying, well, show us, here's a contract for hospitals to get more money if you can show that you added value to a patient. And so some of these initial ones are, oh, show us if you stop readmissions and cardiovascular events. But again, I think it's a long way to go. But Maybe one step and, forward in that direction. And I, want, and I want to add to that, just to answer directly your question, because you're spot on, is, is I was asked once if there's one single thing, when I was on the Hill, if there's one single thing that you need to change, what would it be? And that is to, be, to own your own medical data. Because if you own your medical data, you control it. You control to who you give it to. Not only you become more responsible and becomes patient-driven instead of patient-centric, but also you take away all those poor incentives of all the data exchange and the healthcare data marketplace that is happening unbeknownst to you. Because I think that many of you go to sleep well not knowing that there are these you know, mother-in-law farts uh, CPT codes, <laughs> but there's also that your data is sold 
And so I don't recall my insurer paying me 25K for not using OxyContin this year. I don't recall a certain company paying me or sending me a check because they sold my data to a third company. And so I'm not saying that it's all or nothing, but right now the deal is we have everything and you have zero. How is that for you? And so maybe it should be, I don't know, 20, 80, 30, 70, 50, 50, I don't know, your guess. But I'm sure that there are ways to do bond curves and do price discovery that are exact when people actually own their data and think of data as an asset that increases their value and not as something that we use in order to improve our operations, which is what we do now. We're gonna open this up to the audience for some questions in a moment, but just real quickly, let's zoom out of medicine. Can we talk like transportation, privacy? Emerging tech is happening across a variety of different fields. What are your, what are your thoughts here, Alex? Well, I'll, I'll be uh, you know, bold, brief, and be gone in, in saying that uh, uh, the thing that, that excites me most in, 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 in the data world in other verticals is really the privacy, privacy issue. And, and uh, uh, um, uh, the reason is that um, it, 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 gives you, it gives you the autonomy to do things as a small business owner, as someone who decides to develop a certain technology, as someone who wants to uh, collaborate with other businesses at their own discretion. And so the way I say it is, you are your actions. Your actions are captured by data. And when that data is used or lost or abused by a third party, they take a piece of you. So I think of privacy-preserving technologies, this idea that you can work on data without showing your data, are more dignity-preserving technologies. And that's what excites okay. me. Cool. All right, Sandra. So the biggest... <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to, hi, my name's Anita Viberg. I wanted, I'm actually working with a company called Inrupt uh, by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, exactly on what you were talking about. And it is being done. And we just need, the problem is the people are so used to just giving up their data because everything's free. And we've been, desensitized to that. So to create an awareness of how much damage it's doing um, would be helpful because people are numb to that. So reach out and we'll yeah. do it in different places. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Interesting sort of Jennifer Doudna and her lab, they sort of looked at this uh, sort of the bacteria. The, when bacteria gets infected with a virus, it has this amazing capability of sort of cutting out that part of the DNA. And so CRISPR is kind of imagined like a scissor that it can sort of chop off uh, the part of DNA. And then you, with that, they also create a synthetic part where they can actually replace some things with it. And so that's really CRISPR. CRISPR system actually comes from bacteria. Now we can fast forward. This was sort of late 90s and it took a while and it came to market. This therapy just for sickle cell would cost uh, last I checked, it was like 1.5 or 2 million. But say it cost a million dollars. Now you may say that's a lot of money, but it took billions of dollars. And, and so the, the scale to think about that is there's about roughly 300 people who would benefit from that in the United States. That would cost $300 million a year, right? Now if you, that sounds like a big number, but now if you divide that across the board and the Medicaid and Medicare, it comes down as 14 cents premium. That's an easy thing to deliver, but it's the same thing goes after breast cancer, for example, which has 100,000 plus. Now it becomes unaffordable. And so I think there are these numbers. The other thing, last thing, I don't want to rant on this, but great stuff, the, there's this other thing called NPV, which I think a lot of the late stage investors like uh, private equity funds who try to take mar drugs out of phase two and phase three, and the, and the only reason they're willing to write 100 or 200 or $300 million check sizes they look at the net present value of a drug at that stage. And so a typical drug that is a biologics or small molecule, not in oncology, will take about nine or 10 years to recuperate the cost of developing it, okay? And, and then an oncology drug will take about 12 years. 
Now, what Biden government did is uh, allowed now Medicaid to renegotiate that in the nine, ninth year period, which before the private equities and all these investors recuperated the money. And so that's a problem, because now what's going to happen is the development of the those drugs are going to go up. So there is this, what I'm offering is that it's almost like you turn this knob down, something goes up, and you try to bring that down. So I guess that's the other alternative side of things. I've been quite negative on a few things, but that's the reality. No, and, and I would say in, in, in a positive approach for this, because again, this is not about saying if it's right or wrong, but it's, it's that it is a conscious decision on what do we decide to spend our money on innovation. Because I can also say that there's a disease that kills a person in the world every five seconds. Every five seconds, usually a child. And it's called malaria. And after 40 years, after 40 years where no drug company wanted even to touch it, because most of the malaria that is happening is coming in markets that are not profitable, at least in the eyes of those who invest that money, only now they came up with a vaccine. So I do want to say, because the topic of tonight is what can tech do to humanity, is that tech does nothing. Is what we decide to do with tech that makes a difference. Yeah, that's like a tool. That's great. And so yeah. if we want to take care of the 300, 3,000, 300, great. If we want to take care of all these children, great. That, that's the point, and that's where uh, um, we really, where, where transparency of where the money goes. Instead of complaining about, oh, why do these people are making so much money? Because I'm, I'm upset that I wasn't there. Why didn't I think about it? Instead of us to decide, okay, uh, these are things that we're doing great. These less. How about, you know, we start to concentrate on those things too. Any other questions here? Yeah, go ahead. I had a question uh, for Alex, it's a two-part question around opioids. Having been uh, an owner of pain clinics, uh, I'd love to hear your viewpoint on what, uh, what influence pain clinics, maybe not yours, but other pain clinics had on the opioid crisis. And then the second one is about recovery from opioids and the power of we that you had talked about. Before. Yeah, yeah, no, great, that's a great question. And again, I'll be brief because I'm sure that it hit a lot of people here, one out of three Americans, either themselves or has someone that they know that has problems or had problems with chronic pain or opioids and things. And so clearly incentives to overuse it and to overprescribe it were mostly economic. And that there was this, movement that happened in the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, where a very successful lobby convinced people that, convinced me that if I don't prescribe liberally these medications, I'm a bad doctor. So I prescribed a lot. I killed a lot of people. I caused a lot of people to become addicts until at some point I said, wait a second, this is not right. This is not helping because I started to look at the measurements. I started to measure and see what is the outcome of these people. And so what needed to happen that didn't and what should happen in the future for any development that technology finds out is to say to someone, don't take this magic pill because it'll make you feel better, get out of my office, because that's how it was. Oh, I have pain, sure, take OxyContin, get because I have 40 people waiting. It was a passport to continue my day. Instead is, I will give you this, but just so you know, if you take it for five days, the chance that you will be on it for the rest of your life is 80%. And they're like, really? I don't want that. <laughs> and, and, and the way that I would, you know, I would see, uh, I, I worked at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McCordon in the VA for a long time, and I would see the young men and women coming back from service with bags, bags, literally bags of medication. And they said, I can't get off, I can't get off. And I would say to the guys, you know, that if you stop all this, you'll get it up. Yeah. And they're like, F that, I want it, I want <laughs> And a week later, they're like, good news, I'm having a baby, you know? So, so, so again, what I'm trying to explain is that, that the relationship of physicians with their patients is a reflection of a relationship in society. How do we connect with each other? How do, and this is the answer to the second part. Remember, we talked this evening about trust, about our ability to collaborate and cooperate. And so this is where, you know, technology can make things 
bigger, better, faster, fancier, expensivier, I don't know, whatever. But really what it needs to do is connect us more and, and, and bring us together. Speaking of which, we, oh yeah, go ahead, Ba. Or BD. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I definitely think that technology and health intersection is the way to go for us to live better lives. But the, the biggest elephant in the room when it comes to this, I see is insurance companies. And if we really think about quality of health, and if we want to live a better life, is it, should you really start thinking about taking Wall Street from health insurances? But, or take, you know, take Wall Street out of health insurances in order for us to actually have a better healthcare? What are your thoughts on that? Um, in 10 I'll, seconds. I'll, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll let you I'll take the, the Wall Street part of it, but what I will say like this is that uh, this is not a Hollywood story of good guys, bad guys. This is more like a Greek tragedy. Either we all win or we all lose. Now, granted, some insurance companies are way worse than others from personal experience. Uh, when AI just came out and a buddy of mine came and said, oh, I'm going to use ChatGPT and I'm going to you know, write all these pre-approvals and I'm going to flood it. Turns out Cigna was doing the same thing to deny everybody. So, they're, 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 you know, you can't, you can't, you know, fight stupid with more stupid or evil with more evil. However, and maybe that's a naive thought on my behalf, I don't think that there are people that, on purpose, want to create a system that is hurtful. So, to here, do you want to hop in on the on taking Wall Street out of medicine, please? And I guess Wall Street is trained to think risks, and insurance is in the business of managing risks. So it's kind of a counterintuitive to say that we can take that out, it's not gonna happen. Because the moment you take out insurance something, it's really a risk management strategy, and, and it's just all the hedging, and the entire industry and actuary is built on that. And so what you're asking is, how do we disrupt that model? And it's just not easy, because if you, Otherwise, you know, I think that the, the system we have, uh, we don't have, you know, like I think a lot of European countries have single payer system. Uh, they have pros and cons, and we have, you know, obviously a different system. But I think the one thing is to, if we could really address the core issue of getting sick is the early detections of things. I think a lot of the stuff that's coming out in terms of how do we, how do, we do preventative health care. I think in terms, I think it can sort of, take this approach of disrupting it in this way, so we can disrupt the sick care model rather than you know, I think going into the financial vehicles of it. And so I think preventative care is probably one way of addressing it. Early detection is one way of addressing it. I think early detection becomes a very key thing because if you look at the cancer statistics, someone getting diagnosed with cancer, the vast majority of the people do go bankrupt eventually. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at the vast majority of the Alex, people. 30 seconds, because yeah. we're going to get to the next question. Sure, and, 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 and the direct answer is decentralized insurance. The way we're doing it, for example, in New York, is let's say there are a bunch of young kids. They're in their 20s and 30s. They got, just got off 26. They got off their stuff. So they don't want to pay insurance because it's too expensive, doesn't cover what they want, and their money doesn't work for them. So we created a liquidity pool using tokens with a coverage that is for them. So if they want coverage for, I don't know, reproductive or sex assignment or whatever interests them, that's the coverage. And of course, we worked with insurance brokers. They sit on the liquidity pool, together decide or assess the risk of saying part of that is gonna work for us and part of it is gonna be to pay for those who are sick. And so you create not five insurance companies that control 330 million people or 170 for the employer-based, but actually a gazillion decentralized, and we have an insurance company here called Nick Pro for the group here. That's terrific. Speaking of Pro, yeah, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, Alex and uh, Sahir, thank you very much for sharing your insights, very thought-provoking. Can you introduce yourself? Oh, my name's Chris Neal, I'm with uh, the MedTech Advantage Fund. We invest in companies that come through MedTech Innovator, which is the world's largest, probably most prestigious uh, accelerator for early-stage MedTech. My question is for Sahir. Uh, you were asked a question earlier today about what's the most mind-blowing kind of technology that you've, you've seen uh, or been exposed to. And I'm, you, you mentioned it was gene and cell therapies, correct? 
And so the, the, the question I have is, there's probably only like seven or eight real cell therapies out there, a few gene therapies. What's it going to take for these things to, to eventually become like hundreds of different therapies? What, what's standing in the way of that and how long will it take for that market to develop? And just like to hear your insights on that. I think it's early days for this technology. I think if you think about just human genome was just finished 2003. Uh, until I think 2010, just to sort of sequence a human DNA was costing $10,000, right? So now, by the way, yesterday, Ultimate Genomics just announced that now they can do this for $100. So that, so I think the question always is why things aren't coming out fast enough or what's going on. I think it's also this convergence is happening at the same time. For gene therapy, there's a lot of issues of toxicity and, and how it actually starts to interact. You can do things in animals, but the human body is much more complex. And so, yeah, translation is an issue, toxicity is an issue, the efficacies sometimes are not the way that we thought of. And so I think this is where some tech conversions are very important, where we can think about digital twins of things. You have org organoids as a space where we can actually model out things actually on a human tissue before we go on a human trial. Artificial intelligence is a substrate and everything just becomes very important because now we can predict toxicity before we go and spend, say, half a billion dollars and turns out, uh, you know, the toxicity is a bigger issue. So I think some of these things are starting to converge, but it's early days. I think that's probably the simplest way of looking at it. And, and decentralized yeah. clinical trials. Yeah, yeah I think decentralized clinical trials are very important as well, especially for in COVID times. I think we could have done quite a few things with that. I think we have wearable technology since you're in med tech that enabled the whole decentralized clinical trials. Instead, we can send these remote monitoring devices to people's home instead of asking them to come to clinic. So, so yeah, these are very important. We've got time for one more question. Uh, so I'll, I'll let uh, my beautiful Colombian uh, wife uh, pick the... Uh, okay, there, there you go. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for the great insights, by the way, both of you guys, and thank you guys for organizing this. Uh, my name is Sufin Ajana. I'm an epidemiologist from France. I will not talk about COVID, I reassure you. Uh, I'm more about like uh, pre prevention blindness due to AMD. So my question here is uh, about preventive care because that's what I do. And very often well, when we talk about prevention, we talk about diet, about lifestyle. And we all know like how lifestyle can impact the gene expressions, that's epigenomics and uh, how we can like use this to uh, prevent people from having all kinds of diseases. But very often we are like in an aging population, right? And so how can you convince people who are 60, 70, 80 years old of changing their lifestyle, knowing that they have been, or like they had the same lifestyle for like 80 years, how can you convince them doing this, knowing that today we are going with tech? Of course, it's not about tech, it's about what we do with it. But like how can we convince them to take that tech shift and just help them act better on their health by using today's technologies? I guess I'll, I'll take a quick shot. I, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a difficult question. You know, well, again, numbers come to mind. In the United States, uh, people who have cardiovascular event, uh, an aggressive one, say a heart attack or a stroke, 30% of the time after their discharge, don't take their meds on time. So what you're asking is even more of a complicated question. How do you get people to change their lifestyle? I think it comes down to what he was talking about, incentives, maybe there has to be better incentives. And I guess the question comes down to how do we lower the rate of smoking? I don't know the answer, but we did. Uh, it has to be a societal effort. I think there has to be right incentives, good part of education. And I think physicians taking more of a influencer roles, like the ones that are heavily followed, I think that's probably the model, where I think a, a physician in my, I think there are a couple of physicians I was surprised in TikTok that have millions of followers. And so I think that model needs to apply where, they, where they're putting out more education and information. Maybe that's how I think about it, but he probably has a better answer yeah. to this. Well, I'll give it in English, not in French. But you know, already uh, la cuisine française, you know, that, that, that's the answer, of course. You know, food, food as medicine is one of the things. And so how do you create a system you know, we have food deserts in the United States where the only vegetable that they have are the packets of ketchup coming in with their McDonald's. So embedded in your question of how do we convince old people to change, 
is the assumption that we have to convince. And I don't think that that would be my approach. Again, there are many ways to do things. Uh, you know, some people, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they uh, want to change the food chain. And again, we're going back to incentives and economy. So it's big agri, it's big chem, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the processing that's behind it. So in order to just give it a, a, a flavor of something that we can change and not something that's too ambitious, it's really all these things that we see that are farm to table. Alex, you had a saying uh, about using things that you wanted me to remind you about. Can you yeah, share that with the yeah. audience? And, and, and it just goes back to, I think that would be my final remark for the evening. You know, when people say, how do we fix this? How do we fix opioids? Or how do we fix food? Or how do we fix pharma or whatnot? And I want to say that I remember when I was a kid, I was taught to love people and use things. And now we live in a time where we love things and we use people. And we just need to revert back. And that might be hard. And there might be people that won't agree to do that. But in the vast majority, absolute majority of people in this room and outside, people will opt, you know, will opt to do the technology impacts humanity and connectedness and love people and just use things. It's just stuff. As, as we wrap up, obviously we want to be valuable to both of you. So Sahir, can you tell us a little bit about Modi Ventures and how the zombie community can be uh, powerful and effective for you? Yeah, I think uh, Modi Ventures, sort of, I, I thought, saw the downturn sitting in Houston, which sometimes could be a good or a bad thing. Well, the good thing is that you get to observe both coastal areas of financial markets, the private markets and the public. And, um, you know, we're a family office and we realized that um, in the downturn, this is where we could be quite impactful, where everybody else is kind of uh, taking a back seat. And, I've always been following this sort of convergence of tech, the hardware, the software, the, uh, the, the DNS sequencing, and the synthesis. I think these four S's uh, are really converging for the last 10, 15 years. And we saw initial money going into it and drug discoveries and AI and certain things, and they didn't really pan out. And so I adopted this model of investing where what are some of the areas of 2.0 and so the sim similar things would happen in .NET Crush. Uh, there were these sort of derivatives values to look at, second order effects, because in .NET Crash, the companies failed because they were just too ahead of time, but the internet usage kept going up and up. AOL kept reporting that there were more users they were signing up year after year. I think similarly, if you look at AI or discovery and all of that, there's been some spectacular failures but if you look at some second order effects of what's happening with this four S's intersecting, it's just going up and up, Ultima Genomics, $100 sequencing, genomics becoming part of care, it's becoming part of most on oncology treatments now, it's becoming part of a lot of the things. So I think this is how I think about investments, that's our strategy with MedTag, gene editing, and every other company that we look at. So 2.0 models of things that we have tried a little bit, but they were too early, but they're really raring to go now. So that's Modi Ventures. So LPs in deal flow, maybe. Yeah, so actually, uh, we're LPs in 11 funds as well. So I think the Yosemites and the Ebbing Words of the world and Kosla, so we also see some deal flow from them. There's deal flow from coming to events like that, right? You know, there's MedTech and uh, folks here. And the other sort of deal flow comes from being in Houston. Houston's become a bit of a biotech hub. As I mentioned, Texas Medical Center is the largest in the world. MD Anderson is one of the best cancer hospitals in the world. Immunotherapy really in some ways when invented in Houston. And Houston is, is that, so we also see a good deal flow from that, just being in Houston, so. Yeah. Alex, tell us about Impact Rooms and how we can be valuable to you. Yeah, so, so Impact Rooms, very briefly, is a journey that started about five years ago, pre-COVID, on the, on the heels of Ebola, where I started to invest heavily in Africa. And uh, turned out that there was, no, there was no data out there. And there was this Excel sheet that was running between everybody. And you know the whole continent was, I think, maybe $700 million investment in, 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 in VC money. 
and uh, we started to gather and we realized that it's very labor intensive to do the due diligence and the tickets are very small. So we said, let's automate that. And we started and we built an AI platform and then Chatter GPT came out and all this, you know, LLMs and stuff of that sort. And we said, okay, let's build a, a very robust platform or an ecosystem that incentivizes not only investors and not only clients in, in a matching engine, but also service providers. Because when you give a company money, that's when the, when the tourists, you know, when the problem starts. It's, that's where you know, you know, so how do you give them impact? How do you give them fractional executive help? How do you, you know, uh, uh, provide with them, uh, uh, you know, and de-risk your investment by providing them skills? And so we created a Cortex, we call it the Cortex, and uh, it's for investment communities. It's an AI that's not specific for geography. It just reads whatever and uses human intelligence and signal intelligence. But mostly what we're proud about is really about the Web3. So it has, you know, tokenomics embedded in it. It has a whole host of, I would say, incentives and prizes to do it. So anybody in general who wants to reach out and just talk about the future, that's fine. And if you wanna look at that uh, uh, platform, uh, uh, that too, we always laugh and say one day we'll laugh about it, just won't be today. Dr. Tahira Ali, Dr. Alex Kahana, thank you so much. Let's give him a round of applause. And uh, be sure to check out siliconzombies.com and come back next month on March 19th. March 19th. And we're gonna, uh, we're gonna have three experts in the matchmaking space. That's right. Thank Thanks you. everybody, enjoy thank the rest you. of the night. All right.